You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Well, when I chose this passage, I didn't know what the weather was going to be like for this week. And so I want to just refresh you. The first part of this passage that uh, of John chapter 9 has to do with Jesus healing a blind man. And when he heals him, he puts mud on his eyes, and then he tells him to go and to wash in the pool of Siloam. Now that's the text that I would have chosen had I know about the weather, because I don't know about any of you, but if anybody told me to go and wash in the pool of Siloam, say Wednesday about 10 o'clock at night in my house, I would have been the first one there. I could have called my sermon something like, Mud Packs and Icy Waters, or even Jesus the Air Conditioner. But I didn't know about that, and so we're picking up halfway through this chapter, starting in John chapter 9, starting in verse 18, and I'm actually going to read the text because it's quite lengthy. So if you want to read along in your pew Bible with you, it starts on page 872. Hear the word of the Lord. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already. And you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken from from Moses. But as for, for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to the one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins. Are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? 
And he answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have seen him. And the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say we see, your sin remains. We land in this story where the momentum is building. An event has happened that does not make sense. And so they bring the man and the story to the local authority of the day, the Pharisees. Now, it's not like they're turning him in. There's a genuine element of confusion here. How did this man, who was once blind, come to see And it's urgent for the people in the community there to find out. Because, you see, an event like this bears real meaning on first century life. It bears meaning on who has the authority to heal, and even to heal on the Sabbath. These days, we live in such an individual world. What happens to one person is their private business. If a person has a life-changing physical event, it's good for them but it rarely impacts our own worldview. But it wasn't so in the first century. The Jewish culture desperately relied on their corporate identity. They lived in a land that they called their own, and yet politically they did not live under their own authority. The Romans and the Greeks were always out there lurking around the corner. So to hold on to culture and values and scripture and meaning... It wasn't a luxury for a first century Jew. It was a lifeline. So don't judge the Pharisees too quickly here. As the authority in understanding the law, they were an integral piece of the mortar of this culture. People relied on them, not because they couldn't think for themselves, but because everything had to be unified in order to be a community. An event like this had to be brought to their attention because it shed insight into normal life for everybody in that community. And the thing is, is that through the eyes of the Pharisees, this event just did not make sense. To heal a man born blind on the Sabbath had messianic implications. So this event wasn't just a baffling anomaly to the Pharisees. It was a well-aimed arrow right in the middle of their world. It was offensive. Could someone wash on the Sabbath? Could someone be healed on the Sabbath? Not unless your authority was higher than the Pharisees. And why would somebody violate this essential piece of Jewish identity, the Sabbath, if they claimed to be on the same side and to partake in the same values? The Pharisees were well practiced in protecting their community from outside influences, But this influence was coming straight from underneath. An erosion of the central support beam is much different than chips off the exterior walls. 
And so their initial response comes like a steel plate trying to hold up their well-built house. This man is not from God. And yet, even among the Pharisees, there is a dawning reality that there is an unknowing crack somewhere in their system. How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? The division among them begs for more information, for an explanation that will actually make sense, that will keep their built house intact. And so they call in the parents. Man, that's a phone call that no one wants to get, right? Excuse me, ma'am. We have your son down at the synagogue. We'd like to ask you a few questions about him. As the mother of three children, two of them boys, I'll tell you that that might be the phone call that actually sends me into something that can only be described as worse than labor. It's bad enough when I get in trouble at Trader Joe's. The sad thing is, is that the parents opt out here. You see, the Pharisees had the task of protecting the community. And in their system, there was no room for a man like Jesus proclaiming to be the Messiah. Because that's really what he was doing. Healing a man born blind on the Sabbath. This is only the work of someone with messianic stature. And this is why the parents were being threatened with being put out of the synagogue, which is only a nice Johannine euphemism for being expelled from the community altogether. For whatever reason, these parents were not yet ready to make claims about the identity of Jesus, even though it meant distancing themselves from their son. And so the parents play the safe card here, and John tells us they were afraid of the Jews. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. The parents lack the courage, or perhaps they are just too tired and worn out to consider that there is a real, viable opening within a system that seems to have no room. Well, we've all been there, haven't we? At the end of our emotional rope, burnt out with the same lifelong struggles, in the case of these parents, a disabled child, and then faced with a system that allows virtually no breathing room, In moments like these, it often feels like our faith dissipates, that it loses all of its potency, and we end up submitting to a way of thinking that we did not first sign up for, because we have just been through too much already, and we are exhausted. We know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. But for anything else, you need to ask him yourself. The subtle piece that this story picks up on is that God is not absent in those places of burnt-out life struggle. In fact, the identity of Jesus is front and center here. It's perhaps eclipsed by our fears and the closed systems that surround that allow little room for growth and new life. Had the parents not allowed this fear to eat at their hearts, the story of healing might awaken them to the prayers that they prayed as parents of a newborn boy that one day 
he might be able to see. But instead, fear eclipses their hearts, and in this case, sadly leaves the parents where they can't share in the joy of their son's new sight. The story forces us to the irony that the parents are now the ones who cannot see. The Pharisees call the man born blind again in a desperate attempt to give him a second chance to set this story straight. We know this man is a sinner, they say. Come on, man. Here is your chance to recant, to get right with us. Remember who you are. Remember your heritage. Remember your identity. And instead, the man does an astonishing thing. He simply states a fact. He recalls the act of Jesus in his life without exaggeration, just the simple event that took place for him. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the person of a blind man. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And with those words, he speaks what becomes the final straw. These are the last words between the man and the Pharisees. The conversation then deteriorates into total isolation. And the Pharisees draw the clear boundary. This is what we believe. We do not have room for people like you. And they drove him out. It's at this precise moment that Jesus finds the man. They had already encountered each other earlier in this story. Jesus had already healed him. But now, when all the pieces of the man's identity have failed him, his parents have set him on his own, his religious leaders and authorities have driven him out, then Jesus shows up. I mean, you kind of wonder where he was in the heat of the conversation, don't you? And aren't there times in our most turbulent moments where we wonder, where is Jesus in all of this? But the text is so clear. Jesus finds him after he hears that the man has been driven out. When all the clear pieces of his identity exhaust themselves... Jesus comes to him with a question. Do you believe in the Son of Man? He doesn't ask him, are you okay? Which would make me feel a lot better if those were the words. Or even better, don't worry, you're going to be okay. It's not that bad. No. He says, do you believe in the Son of Man? You see, Jesus comes to this man when all of his other resources have been exhausted because he is always concerned with making something new, not fixing the old. Jesus could have showed up on a scene before. It certainly would have made the parents look better. And it would have saved the man from going through this further pain of the expulsion from the community. And quite frankly, it would have given all of us relief in our hearts because it would suggest that God shows up on the scene to repair us, 
and to patch things up and to help us. And while God does often show up on the scene to do those things, the greater truth that this story makes us painfully aware of is that God shows up when we are utterly exhausted because God has the power to make us new. And making something new begins with believing in the Son of Man. And you can't believe in the Son of Man if you are still believing in an old system that does not have room for him. But when everything else has fallen apart, well, that old system might crack just enough to let some light in. And next comes one of my favorite exchanges in this whole passage. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus says, you have seen him. The one speaking with you is he. You have seen him. You have seen him. What kind of a message is this to a man born blind? Surely the first time that he is seeing Jesus is right in that moment. No, Jesus says, you have seen him. All the rants with the Pharisees, the questioning of the parents, you have seen him. The bone-chilling trial, the call to recant, the expulsion from the community, you have seen him. Jesus insists on the past tense here, suggesting that his presence was with this man in a way that was beyond physical and scientific explanation. Even the story does not describe a visual encounter between these two before this precise moment. And yet Jesus persists. You have seen him. By responding to the words of Jesus, by holding on to the event of the healing, the man born blind was able to see Jesus even in the midst of these trials, even before he could see. And then the man responds with a genuine cry of faith, Lord, I believe. Present tense. Something new happened right in that moment. And he worshipped him. You see, Jesus isn't interested in preserving the system that the Pharisees set up. He is interested in redefining sight. Because the ultimate question that we're left with in this passage is what does it mean to see? And Jesus forces us to reckon with the fact that sight is not about vision. It's not only biological. But sight, in its purest sense, is tied to knowing the person of Jesus. In this story, these are the ones who can see. When I spoke to a close friend of mine who is a pastor in Cape Town, she told me that she recently also preached on this passage and that she actually chose to have a blind man read the scripture. Not a man born blind, but in this case, a man who came to South Africa because his eyesight was deteriorating and he came there with the hopes that he would regain his sight. In fact, it turned out that the doctors couldn't do anything currently and his eyes have only deteriorated. 
And so he read this passage by Braille. And when she told me this, I was troubled. And I said, wasn't this such a hard passage for him to read? I mean, the passage is about healing, and so far he hasn't been healed. And she told me, no, no. He was so glad to be included in the community. And he even shared that his coming blindness, though he wishes for healing, has impacted his life in such a way that it gives him new sight into who God is. You see, when we walk with Jesus, everything is redefined. Sight, blindness, scarcity, abundance, life, death. Because the ultimate reference point of everything is Jesus. And if we can see with our eyes, but we can't see him, then we can't see. And if we can't see, but we can still see him, then somehow Jesus insists that we can still see. Because we are not defined by our biology, but by Jesus, who is not as interested in simply fixing us as he is in making us new and bringing us into the wholeness of life. And this life starts physically, but it moves to the encounter with Jesus. The blind man sees Jesus in full resolution because he sees with eyes, he sees with eyes that have been resurrected by the Messiah. He sees with resurrection eyes. Eyes that function fully biologically because they know their source and they know their Redeemer. Eyes that for all of us in this room bear witness to us in our lives that there will be a resurrection day when biology will no longer be estranged from its author, but that the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Thanks be to God. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.